You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Ellie Fox and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent and today I am your host. Hugo, you're on the top left. If you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about you and then uh, we'll go, go through there. Okay, so I'm Hugo Mathias. Um, I, at the moment, I'm not working. I've taken a bit of a break, but I was the CIO at Great Western and then Northampton General, uh, which I was there for, four, for three and a half years, and then just recently at Portsmouth and Isle of Wight. Um, before that, I worked in consultancy, uh, so mostly around healthcare digital uh, agendas. Thank you, Hugo. And then Dan, if we could uh, go to you. Yeah, certainly. So hi everyone, Dan Jeffrey. I'm the uh, CISO um, and Assistant Director for Data at NHS Blood and Transplant. Uh, I've been here since September last year um, and prior to that I was at NHS Digital as a Deputy CIRO and um, the, ran the National Cyber Programme in the Data Security Centre and then prior to that I was at Accenture of all places. Thank you, Dan. And then Osman, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, thanks. So I'm Osman Batty, GP by background um, in North East London and the CCIO mm-hmm. for uh, North East London SDP Stroke ICF. Thank you. And Mark, finally, last but not least. Mark Gregson, uh, at least one of the panel knows me very well. I'll let you guess who that might be. He's nodding ferociously. Um, so Mark Gregson, Deputy Chief Information Officer for Barnet Enfield Haringey. Uh, prior to that, I was up in Northamptonshire, uh, just down the A- A43 from, from Hugo. Uh, and prior to that, was in Sheffield and Bradford uh, in some of the digital space. So I'm, I'm working slowly further south. So hopefully by the end of my career, I'll end up in the south of France. <laughs> Love that. Um, OK, Fab, what I'm going to do is ask... Um, go to the questions so I know Dan you had quite a few and Osmond you had two as well what I'm going to do is ask each person's question the first question and then go back around if that makes sense um so if we start with Hugo because you're top left so you said the given the NHS needs has more demands to implement latest technology with the public becoming more tech savvy with mobile devices procurement assumes that we know what we want and we are able to articulate that so products can be developed in a waterfall method however agile methods of building solutions in partnership with vendors will produce solutions that are more tuned to the wants and needs of the problem do you have examples of building solutions in partnership with vendors and how did you manage the procurement issues? Um, so we can just, if you want to give us a bit of context to that, Hugo, and then I'll... Um... It's, uh, I think it's because when when we're trying to purchase solutions and trying to get um, things within the, the kind of IT space of hospitals, we do all these requirement gathering and we end up building building our requirements that we then put out to um, the vendors. They'll respond to those. And then sometimes when it's all, all being built, and there's plenty of examples of where this has happened, it turns out that it doesn't, it isn't quite fit for purpose. And yet what we do know is if we build something with the partners and you do a minimum viable product and then you develop further on that and you actually make that work for what the, the, the um, solution needs to be, you end up having a, a product that is useful. The problem with that, of course, is that procurement rules are that you purchase something and therefore have competition and if you are going to then develop it further then the value of that procurement goes up and up and up as you're developing and that is something that then becomes a bit of a conflict for what is essentially a waterfall requirements gathering as opposed to an agile let's just see how we go with this and then develop something further and and I've done um, both actually and it's being the, the 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 waterfall method doesn't work out always quite so well and yet the agile method works out very well but then you've got this issue around are you going to go over the procurement thresholds um, where's the competition uh, you know, all those kind of uh, problems that you get and, and the only way I got around it is by having the the development actually mostly in-house and using contractors to develop and help us and I'm just wondering what other people have done and whether this has been an issue, you know, is this an issue across all trusts? Because most people just buy a solution, it seems. Thank you, Hugo. I know, Osman, you seem to be nodding your head there. Do you want to 
So yeah, I I, I totally agree. I think this is one of the issues with um, marketization coming into the NHS that it's created this 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 issue. Um, and I think we we've certainly experienced both. Uh, so for example, within within primary care, certainly where we've got um, online consultations that we have to go through a procurement process for, and it and it is a costly, and people don't end up using it because it's not the product they wanted. Um, and then we've done an agile project raised small which so therefore low cost um, and we've scaled it and it's it's been a real success and that's with um, local online registration process to get patients registered quickly um, into a GP practice so so I can see both both sides and and uh, I, I was commenting to a colleague about about this and that we're, we're wasting so much money on procurement processes that we could invest elsewhere and and we just need that kind of um, I think I'm going to mention this word quite a lot, really, but trust. I think there's there's a lack of trust within the system. That's that's affecting how we um, decide which product products to use. Thank you, Dan. Have you got anything to add? Yeah, just so not from a trust perspective, but when we were at NHS this when we did the the cyber operations centre, uh, one of the ways in which, well, the way, not one of the ways, the way in which we procured that was we had effectively a core service, you know, build us a SOC, the core functions within that SOC, which, you know, are the, almost the no regret capabilities. And then hanging off the back of that was an innovation fund, which were based on our requirements as they evolved and developed over time, work packages from the provider or supplier of that core could then be spun up and accepted or if not we could go out to market but we had a fund effectively designed to help maintain the, the necessary pace evolve with our uh, kind of emerging requirements we didn't know everything at that point in time so this all sounds grand but the way in which we were able to achieve, achieve that was we had to follow the OGU process which if anybody's gone through that um it's uh, it's quite robust <laughs> to say the least um it also takes a inordinate amount of time and there is a significant kind of procurement pro commercial overhead for it so whilst it can give you be provide a bit more flexibility the trade-off is with with that time piece um we it just to hugo's point at the moment with um, within uh, nhsbt we've stood up product centers so designed to be able to have you know, a bit like a Spotify kind of model with squads and what have you to try and uh, be more um, timely, agile in our delivery, etc. for various demands and requests from various parts of business, be it um, organ transplant, uh, blood supply, whatever it may be. And with under that is we have framework arrangements with key kind of suppliers um, again. And then so you have a funding envelope of X. And then under that you have kind of a SOW kind of approach to it. So you can call off on smaller, pack, more discrete packages of work. Um, but thou shall not burst the overarching commercial cap. Again, these do come with a commercial procurement overhead, yeah. but putting in the hard yards, I suppose, or hard yards, those additional yards up front, especially when you're not buying cots or commodity product um, or service, it sometimes does pay off, even though it is sometimes a bit of a pain <laughs> if I'm honest. Thank you Dan and then finally Mark have you got anything that you want to add? Yeah thanks just to echo what everyone else has said really I mean had experience on both sides of this um, and actually in, in certain parts of my career inheriting a, a system inheriting a build and a contract uh, is bad enough when when you're when you're starting it from day one on your own, but when you're inheriting something that someone else has designed is, is arguably you know, twice as bad. Picking up on what Dan said, uh, first of all, in that I really like that iterative approach is that you have your core offering, you know, you, you know regrets as, as Dan's called it, oh, I'll, I'll caption that, I'll use that, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> because that's your core, that's absolutely what that system must do as an absolute uh, you know, non-essential non, uh, deliverable. But then having smaller packages, so something we're doing at the moment with with um, um, our data warehouse is exactly that. So we, we we knew we had the core competencies, the core deliverables, and then we're starting to just sort of you know, pick off the smaller elements to, to deliver that. It is a challenge and remains a challenge from a procurement point of view. Um, being candid, I know this is recorded. You know, so the, the rules are there for to protect public money. Absolutely, this is public money. We need to be absolutely transparent about it. But 
the process we all were experienced means that you could waste at least six months of your working life getting to the same position actually you could have got to within two to three weeks reasonably um, and I think just picking up on the last point that Osman made about trust uh, and this is about perception because now you know in 2021 we, we have a workforce and, 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 and a population that have grown up through the the sort of the, the Facebook and the Amazon and the yeah and so there's there's that expectation that when an NHS IT system it just works it's intuitive you don't have to go through the 50 different steps to get to the same result so that's something with we're, we're trying to get through in that how do you make that procurement process as transparent to the end user not not to us as a collective but to the end user so we're trying to get panels together and actually get them involved from day one uh, in the design of the system so echo what everyone said really Thank you. Does any, anyone want to add anything else on before we well, move so, on to so the next the, question? I mean, the, the thing that Osmond said, which is around, you know, procuring a service that seems to tick the box, but people don't actually end up adopting. And and with, there's plenty of examples of that as well across the system where we, we would buy something, we've got our requirements, we've, we've looked at it, we've had people who are um, interested in IT look at it and, and do a bit of a test on it. And then when you actually go to roll it out, you suddenly find that, that the nurses don't like it very much or it's a bit clunky or there's too many clicks and it doesn't seem to move forward um, and the adoption ends up being very challenging. And, and one of the things I think is, is missing in some of these contracts is what I call that success factor. Because if the vendor themselves was also liable for it to be successful, then they would be working with us to actually make it, um, to adapt it and make sure it works for them. And that's the one bit of the procurement process that seems to be missing is, you know, you get too many vendors that will bend over backwards, meet you like crazy beforehand. The moment they've done the sale, sales done, they're out the door, they leave it to a few techie people. And then if it fails, they don't care because they've had the money and they've got the contract for another three years. And I've got I've, I've had a couple of times where that's happened and you just you, you end up trying to make something it's more like you know it's like herding cats or pushing water uphill it's it's very very challenging to try and get people to adopt a system that actually doesn't work the way that people work so i really i really kind of recognize that and i think nhbt at large does as well and one of the so one of the things that we've been kind of rolling out over the last calendar year i suppose if not a tiny bit longer um, has been um, ensuring that there's a user-centric design approach um, into everything. So from in-house build and kind of what have you, all the way through to requirements capture for external procurement through G Cloud or whatever it may be, and actually building that kind of user centricity, for want of a better term, into the core element of what it is we're delivering so that it is usable, it is understandable, it is intuitive, all of those kind of good things as a part of the core deliverable, the core contractual terms, I think is really important because it's then not, not just the, the back end, the bits of tin or, you know, kind of capability in the cloud. It's actually how folks use it, how they adopt it, how they kind of interact with it as well as being built into that whole process. Um, but it is, it's a challenge, you know, because user expectations, et cetera, they do change. I did just, just to, um, give an example of a product that's worked really well. So, uh, and I think this goes back to what, what is it that people will use and will find easy to use and what's the problem? So, um, primary care had a problem of communicating with um, patients through SMS. Um, Accurex came in and offered a free product to say, here's a really simple, um, low-tech way, within two clicks, you can send a text message to, to your patient. Um, it got um, penetrating to about 90 plus percent of all practices because everybody found it useful um, and then they had additional tools which were then um, funded you had to pay pay for but but the whole process of it was very much people knew how it worked it, it was very much user driven and I think that that kind of approach seems to work so it is very much how do we get people to use it and then um, fund it rather than fund it and then finding out people don't use it so it's it's a challenge yeah. thank you Sorry, I know, yeah, I, I know we're going to we're wander into another one of the questions for the panel later on, but that for me then brings a, the question of comp digital competency in our collective workforce and and also the sort of the, 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 the risk appetite, because what we've talked about as a collective here 
could be deemed quite risky in terms of from a procurement point of view. And each trust will have their own risk appetite and, and at various times will change. So I think that's something as a consideration, you know, the NHS needs to take on board that yeah, the situation in 2021 is not what it was in 2018 for the rather obvious reasons. Um, but, but again, it won't be the same in three years' time. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's something we need to consider. Um, so we'll go to you Dan, next, Dan. Um, the first question you asked was, how do we better coordinate and share good practice and lessons learned for digital transformation experiences, delivery and in-life utilisation? Could you give us a bit more context onto that? Yeah, certainly. So I think, you know, like all good things, especially in a system as varied, large and what have you as ours, um, there are pockets of absolute brilliance and then there are pockets of less brilliance. Um, and it's uh, to put it diplomatically and it's in terms of how folks have gone through, you know, what can be quite a painful but really important kind of journey is being able to understand how can we share what went well across the system better how can we identify and do the difficult really difficult lessons learned of where things haven't gone well and understand what are the root causes of that and share them more widely more broadly um uh, kind of in a more of a community-based way because at the moment we have things like NHSX who do you know lessons learned at big strategic level and that's grand and they do give us some high level kind of design principles about x y and z super but actually for folks on the ground who actually have to implement deliver you know all this kind of good stuff they're too high level and there are what, what about the next order of things how do we get a real community of practice in this area across across the uh, across the piece so just one area in my previous role we set up a thing called the cyber associates network this was literally designed to bring cyber practitioners together from across secondary and primary care into one virtual forum to be able to talk about you know delivering xyz or countering a b and c is there something you know could we do something similar without it becoming a behemoth in and of its own right for digital transformation so we get that extra level of granularity thanks dan mark you got your hand raised yeah thanks um so i can echo absolutely what dan's just said because i'm a, a customer as it were of of mccann uh, i was one of the founding members of the development group one of the number of trusts that were done uh, enlisted to for our assistance and i think that's that space uh, how it's delivered, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that, but the essence of, of what that space is about is really, really positive um, because it's not just about people singing their own praises because that's what you see often on social media and press outlets is, oh, aren't we great? We did, we deployed X. And you don't learn from your successes. Let's be honest, all of us have, have, you know, have been there and you learn from your failures and it's creating that safe space for us to go, I actually didn't do very well on this, and this is what I've learned. So, you know, you might make different mistakes, but don't make the same ones as me. And that again comes back to trust. And there's probably a recurring theme here all through this conversation about trusting your peers enough to go, that didn't work for me. This is why. And don't, and not to feel as if you're being held, you know, to be some sort of a, a failure. Um, the, the other thing I just want to say on that very quickly is, is Open question: Is there a is there a role for at a more national level to almost mandate the sharing of good or less good practice? And I've never been a fan of you know the aut or automatic or, or autocratic view. But how do we get trust and an organisation to share their output more freely? Hugo, have you got anything to add on to that? Yeah. So. <sighs> One of the challenges I think you have when you're working in a hospital, speaking from my own perspective, when you're working in a hospital and you've got uh, so much that's going on because you're looking after the whole digital agenda within a hospital, there's a lot kicking off. When you're trying to implement some kind of new transformational thing, where do you look up to find out who's done that before? There, there doesn't seem to be a lookup of, of who's done that before or even who's using that vendor before. Because, you know, when you come, you know, the, the vendor will tell you, oh, we're working with this trust, this trust, this trust. And that's fine. They'll 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 sing the praises of the one they work well with. But you also want to understand the ones that they're not working well with and a few of the contracts they've lost to work out what's the risk. 
because it still might be that you end up working with them, but you understand some of the risks. And that's a, that's one of the challenges you have. I mean, ideally, what I'd love to have in from some central source, be the NHS Digital or NHSX, is a library of business cases. So if you've got someone that's building a business case for a certain um, uh, something that's coming through and it's approved, then it should be, once it's approved, it should be lodged with the central library. So you know that you've approved a business case, it's with a vendor, you can then look at that, look at how they've built the business case, look at what they've done. You could then talk to the, that that trust and say, okay, you've, you've had the business case, did it go over budget? Was it working well with that company? And also, if you're trying to actually build a business case yourself to try and get some solution through, looking at previous business cases and seeing what other people have got as their requirements is a great way of shortcutting um, that requirements gathering because you're starting from a base level that is much higher than just going to people saying, well, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? So I, that's what I'd love is somewhere to be able to go. You know, it's, it's challenging. There is There was a company years ago when I was consulting that offered to uh, tell you which solutions, which software was being used in different trusts. And I, I, I was in between Great Western and Northampton. So I thought, okay, let's see what they've said for Great Western. And it was way out of date. And they, they wanted like 24,000 a year for this database of which trusts are, are using what. We're not so good at sharing from trust to trust in a central repository where, what solutions we have and what, and, and, and what we're doing with our software. I, that doesn't make sense to me. Dan, you've got your hand raised. Yeah, just I suppose a question for Hugo based on that. So, what what dry? Why aren't we good at sharing across trusts? Is is it a case of time poor? Um, is it a case of we inherently don't trust that we see it as competitive advantage, or which I can't? Yeah, you know, what's what do we think is the driver? I think I think some of it's cultural from having um, a competitive feel which is now kind of should have gone out the out the door and and because this new collaborative way of working and the ICS model should now be the case hmm. uh, the the other one is of course some trusts they've they've allowed departments to buy software and it isn't initially owned by the ICT department so the ICT department isn't always aware of what's going on, especially not at senior levels. Maybe the juniors have been there and they've been helpful and they've they've made the solution work and they've gone to talk to the consultants and, hey, it's in, it's working, so don't bother us anymore. But when you actually come down to kind of renewing contracts, a couple of times where, I, I mean, I've been caught out where a contract's come up for renewal, IT, you know, IT department didn't know anything about it. The the um, everyone assumed it was somebody else's responsibility, and the next thing you know is you're clamouring round at the last minute with a kind of three or four days left to try to get the service back up and running. It, it's you know so we we know that that the department the the IT department doesn't always know exactly what mapping of software there is when the contracts are going to expire all that kind of that's the kind of data we need there's, that needs to be in a kind of central database, ideally, but at the moment there isn't a tool that enables that and it's 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 in spreadsheets and you know what that's like. Asmin, you raise your hand. Yeah, so so I, I like the idea of a central repository. I think, yeah, to, to Dan's point, it is really challenging to try and how do we do that? And I think there is a, a additional um, hoop to jump through if you're going through a process. So, but but it can be helpful if everybody does it. I think that there's, there's lots of merits to that. And uh, to, to Mark's point around having a um, lessons learned, I think absolutely. I think we, 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 we learn more from uh, the problems people have had rather than the the shiny tools that they they sing and dance about and uh, you know I've, I've spoken to many people about their excellent case study that they've done that's published um, but when you delve into it and you try and replicate it they say oh don't do it this way because it didn't work for us but, but we didn't know about that right at the beginning so so it, it is very much that that trust but um, we'd only get there if we Know, know who to contact that comes back exactly to I don't think people want to share those kind of mistakes yeah. unless it's slightly more anonymous Just jumping back to, sorry, Dan, in your old role, mm. I'm just thinking that that space you guys created, there's a huge amount of documents being shared. So the model's there. Mm. The model's there. It's just whether there's that political organisational appetite to 
put a front end to it to go, okay, guys, here's your business cases, here's your lessons learned. I don't think that would be too much of an ask of someone of like the NHSD or X ilk to put a national framework together. Um, because you've already we've you've already built that previously for, for other reasons. And just just picking up on on the last point of, of Hugo's there, and again, I'll be candid. Uh, you know, I've made some howlers. I'll be honest. I've made some. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Uh, you look back and you think I would have taken a different decision, a different path. But it's creating that safe space, and again, without any repercussions, without any, oh, you're the guy that, you know, five years time, you're the guy that took that decision. Um, but that's the only way we'll drive this change, I think, with, with the openness in the NHS, because procurement processes take a huge amount of time and money and expense from an organisation. And you could end up still knowingly with the wrong decision. So. Um, yeah, so Dan, if, I don't know if you've got any links back into your old world, but I think you might be on something there. Dan, do you want to go? Yeah, so I mean, my hand's up to say, look, I don't think it's a case of anything to do political. I just don't think we've, the questions been asked of them, because I think it's, I think, as you're right, you, you know, that futures platform, which the CAN is built on, I think there's probably, you know, a request we could put into them to, as an idea to say, what about X, Y and Z? Because it uh, it makes everybody's life easier. It adheres to the principles set out in the tech vision and all that kind of good stuff by NHSX around sharing best practice, leading to greater interest, all that stuff. It would and it's a fairly cheap and cheerful, dare I say, uh, kind of a kind of thing to stand up. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think it's just a case of they haven't they haven't thought about it, um, and and maybe we could suggest it to them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fabulous. Osman, so you asked, uh, one of your questions was, how can we increase increase patient trust in healthcare data? Yeah, so, so short, short question, but I think really, really loaded because I think that there's lots of um, issues that have been going on around trust that certainly um, from a primary care perspective has been in, in the spotlight. And this has um, been focused really uh, recently through the GPDPR issue where um, NHS Digital wanted to just take the data from uh, GP records without much consultation um, and it was it was deemed as care.data version 2 but on the quiet and, and I think it's, it's that kind of initiative that gets uh, put through um, cynically I would suggest intentionally um, that tries to bypass uh, that, that public involvement and, and that does undermine trust um, and it, and I think what we really need to do is try and maintain the trust because if we are up front, yes, of course, we'll get a discussion going um, and there might well be people who will object, but it will be less people that object through a trusted process than those who will react and uh, withdraw consent. So, so it is very much how do we build that trust? And and I suppose the other small caveat to that is that there are also discussions about, you know, if, it, if the government can't. Um, get the data through that method, they'll change the law. And I think that's even worse. Um, so it's, yeah, so, so I suppose it's that, that's the question in terms of how can we influence that or those decisions, really. Thank you. Dan, we'll go to you next. Yeah, thanks, Ali. So I think that's that that whole GDPR bit, whatever, the GPPDR, whatever. Um, <laughs> not too many letters. Uh, uh, that That's a really good case study on um, having just a tech-led solution. There was no kind of real comms and engagement bit around what it was, you know, really setting the conditions and the environment from which actually that quite potentially really powerful, important piece could be actually successful off the bat. Because at the, mo the moment that you drop the ball with that comms strategy, you're on the back foot and you're never, ever, ever going to get on the front foot because you're right. Everybody harks back to care.data. Everybody harks back to, you know, sharing with the home office, you know, those certain data set and all that kind of stuff. And you end up being absolutely beholden to the path of least resistance from the press and from everyone else, which is they're out to sell you data, which absolutely was never the case. If you don't set the conditions with message, messenger and audience, you're nowhere very, very quickly. And that's the problem. And I, you'd kind of expect an organisation like that that's done some amazing things, right? That has done some really good stuff, you know, to have learned those kind of lessons. 
maybe we should get them to uh, be the first contributors to our portal about lessons learned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mark, do you want to go? Yeah, thanks. Echo everything that both colleagues have said. We had this conversation not that long ago internally in, in, within my trust. Um, I'm going to be slightly contentious here, and, and, and I do genuinely agree with everything that, that Osman said, but societally, we are quite happy to use social media to tell people where we go on holiday and what, how who our family members are, and very few people give much consideration to what data they share, where it's stored, who accesses it, how long for, for whatever means, because no one scrolls. Everyone scrolls through the license agreement and clicks accept and just accepts it and goes on. The level of scrutiny around NHS data, clearly we, we hold you know, highly confidential, sensitive personal information. But, but, as, a, but as, a, as a thought process, I, I, do, I do often wonder um, what the public assess our, our, our drivers for, for doing this. So again, some years ago, um, I was, uh, I was up, in, up in Yorkshire, up in Sheffield, and um, most of the council, most of the city uh, gyms were run by the council. And they, at this point, had got a membership scheme and deployed an app and great, you can book your classes and you can put your weight and your height and how much you smoke and you drink. That level of information was public, was given openly by the by the members to the council, the gyms. And we're like, oh, this is really good. We went, we did a public consultation. Can we tap into your data for the health and uh, wellbeing uh, agenda? Absolutely no. Absolutely no. Public quite happy to tell the gym who they thought was the gym rather than the council. Oh, I've I, I smoked 40 a day and I drink 10 pints a day, whatever. But they weren't happy if that information to be shared with the NHS. So I think societally it's quite an interesting conversation, really. Thank you. Asmin, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I'll, I'll totally agree. I think it, it is very much um, that there is uh, a lot to do with just trying to um, get, get a bit of reality into what, what is happening with, with the data. And, you know, I think many. Uh, if not all of us have been um, just scrolling through and not, not read the small print. But I think particularly with um, GP data, it, it is very much a matter of uh, one of the reasons that trust is so high with clinicians is because um, there is that level of uh, level level of trust that I'm going to be uh, recording stuff about you for your healthcare that I'm going to keep within my record and I'm not going to have um openly revealed and yes yeah, so certainly we, we do it you know we, we know how many diabetics who smoke um are in my area and, and that kind of data is, is there but when it when it becomes the potential to identify people or even pseudonym pseudonymously potentially could also be identifiable one could argue um then, then i think that becomes an issue and the, the information that people have given in confidence will then mean that next time it won't be giving confidence and I think that's the worry that, that we could then end up inadvertently um, doing harm. Uh, we, we already have, have this, I've got patients who who don't tell me you know um, things around the homeopathic medicine they take or something because they think you know I'll think that they, they're, they're some you know uh, weird, weird person but if I've got the trust that they, they'll tell me that and it might be that there's some medication they shouldn't be taking um, and, and I wouldn't know that if I didn't have that trust so, so it's all about that trust for me, really. Hugo, have you got anything uh, to add? Yeah, so the, the I guess for me, there's there's two sides to this because one of the trust issues you'll have with people is around accuracy of data, and and it, and it's kind of owning what the accuracy is. You know, as we step into this new era of um, remote care and having, and we're going to start getting um, devices feeding into the care record, so. Care data at the moment has always been done with medical equipment, medical grade everything, and we trust it. We're about to step into a new era where we're going to have devices giving um, things, uh, readings through. And for all we know, they could have blood, put the blood pressure cuff on a small child as opposed to on themselves, and yet the reading would have been uploaded. So we're going to, there's an issue around and trust. So my view is we should we should identify what the trust levels are. So first one would be it's our trust. It's our it, it, it's done by our hospital. We are legally responsible for it. We own it. Therefore, it's trusted. Second one would be uh, a trust 
or another healthcare environment, which you're not legally responsible for, but you know that they're credible and therefore it's uh, it's, it's good information. And your third level of, of trusted information is going to be it's from the general public. Take it with a pinch of salt. If it's coming out with a high blo low blood pressure issue, then call them in and get it into kind of tier two. But then you've also got that what I call the, the kind of feedback mechanism, which should be done through the trusted confidant. You know, the, the GP is the G, is the trusted confidant. So the issue that we, that we had um, even in Northampton was um, if someone has got a blood test and it turns out that from the blood test that they have hepatitis C, who contacts the patient? Should it be the consultant who gets a list of all the bloods that come through with hep C? Or should it be the GP that says, actually, we know we, the blood test that you did in the hospital for something else, one of the things coming back is a hep C. So I think we need to have you dealt with your hep C. It should be that trusted confidant. And that's what we decided within Northampton, that you, what you do is you, you go back to the person who requested that blood and they are the person that needs to make that contact. And, and that's where you build the trust levels because the trust data within the healthcare environment is, is normally quite good as long as the data quality is good. I mean, the, the number of friends I've got that suddenly go, well, you know, they told me this and it's completely wrong. And you, you look into it and, and actually someone's made a few mistakes. But but actually the quality of our data is normally quite good. And we, we, we're proud of the fact that we do do quite good data. It's just a case of how do, how do we correspond that with our, our end users, the, you know, the, the, the public. And that should be done through the, the, the kind of trusted confidant, which is usually the GP. Thank you, Hugo. Dan, do you want to go next? Yeah, just to kind of echo Hugo's point and to also some, echo something we said a bit earlier, which is that's a really good example of message messenger audience, right? Because your message is staying consistent regardless of whichever avenue you're going through, but you're achieving a different result because the messenger is the appropriate one. So maybe that's something we need to kind of bear in mind when we think about this, like, you know, folks do trust clinicians implicitly. Um, it's built into a Hippocratic oath and keeping confidentiality and non-malfeasance and all that side of life. They, they trust uh, civil servants, dare I say, or those that work in the centre less because they feel that there's a degree of separation. And so therefore using you know, that secondary use of data for wider, more you know, preventative kind of analytics and all those kind of, or analytics at least preventative measures, um, there is that absolute kind of um, like distance between the person giving their data, the person trusting who they're giving it to, and then ultimately what it's used for. Um, and I think that's bridging that, that's the real tricky piece. And there's, there is a bit around kind of the um, living on our laurels, so avoiding things like care.data, kind of part two, mark two, what have you, being really thorough in our comms and transparent and explicit using kind of ensuring that we stay on the right side of legislative regulatory frameworks obviously but also from a technology perspective ensuring when we say it's pseudonymized or anonymized or whatever it actually is and there is a really deep level of scrutiny that is transparent as well so people could check it that you cannot reverse engineer it to identify the individual, but the core components are there to be able to do that mass analytics, to be able to actually move from cure to prevention across certain pathways. I think that's, it's, it's a really, it's a knotty problem to say the least. Thanks, Dan. Asmin, you put your hand up next. Yeah, so, so just just to echo, um, I absolutely agree with what, what's been said. And I think certainly what we're moving towards is a patient held record. So so as a as a patient, people should be in control of their data, knowing what's in there, who put it in there, whether it was themselves or, or elsewhere, and having control of um, who, who they they want to share share it with, and uh, and that that is something we're we're working towards trying to um, build that that trust between um, patients and who they want to share it with, uh, and that openness is something I think that will help support um, the, the evolution of of how we move forward with um, greater things with uh, at scale sharing. Excellent, Mark. Just a comment, really. I think because this could be subject to its whole podcast on its own, really. Osman will know better than anyone on this panel. The more digitization we introduce, the greater the risk of that personal separation from the patient. And that's something, you know, I've, I've, I've experienced in my own personal life with, with, with family members in that, um, great, it makes it more efficient, but actually, there is, as Dan said, 
the Hippocratic Oath, though, is that the underlying trust of GPs and, and, health, and hopefully the health community, but GPs, and what we need to absolutely guard against is the digitization we do within our healthcare delivery doesn't in any way diminish that trust with our with our primary care colleagues because if we do that then then we're we're in a bad place. Mm -hmm. Hugo? I guess for me again the litmus tape paper test that I would have is no surprises. You know what we're supposed to be doing is providing no surprises to our uh, public. OK, um, and although there is going to be AI coming in and there's going to be some amazing things we can do with data, we also have to remember that this is a human service and that people actually get better quicker when there's a human interaction, not necessarily a robot. So it's it's trying to remember that having the data is all very well, doing something clever with the data and being able to be preemptive with some of these conditions that people are having and keeping them healthier is is great but it has to be done in a human way. And that human way would be no surprises. So you want to have someone that you can trust, that you can talk to, just like Osmond said, you know, if, if, a, if a patient's doing something stupid, like taking drugs, like or, or, all sorts of crazy things that people do, we all drink and, and, and people get smashed out of their heads and fall over and, and, and all sorts of things. And the health service doesn't turn them away and say, well, that was your own fault. So really what we want to be able to do is, is, is have that, guardianship of the data and being able to help them through their lives in the way they want to do it, but having a, a place where there is no surprises. Mm. Thank you, Hugo. And then Mark, if we come to you with your question. So you asked, how can we ensure that lifelong digital skills are easily available for the hardest to reach parts of our society? And just elaborate on that. Yeah. So uh, something I've been involved with for, for a number of years, um, you can call it the digital divide, but is a that societal change and certainly the last crack in the last 18, 24 months, haven't we seen a, a gargantuan shift? So I'm involved with uh, something called the Digital Poverty Alliance, uh, which is hopefully trying to at least bring this to, to attention. Um, Couple of very, very brief stats for you. 25% of vulnerable children do not have access to any form of digital IT equipment at all. 70% um, of households in the UK who earn less than £17,500 a year have no access to IT or digital skills. And I can spout stats and whatever, all that, but, but Ultimately, if we're again, if we're not careful, we will create a multi-layered society where those who are at the absolute yeah, extremes of our society will feel even more removed because of their inability to either have equipment or and all the digital skills. So we've been working in North Central London with with Health Watch um, on a pilot program to, to 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 use community groups, to use libraries, to use and delivery of kit and digital skills. And we've had some at a local level, some really good results, some really positive results. And my question to the panel is, I think we all accept this is a problem. What do we do about it? And, and again, is it is it my own personal view? And I get quite um, agitated about this is this is a basic human right now. This is as much about food, shelter, jobs, digital skills are, are, are a human right. So do we mandate that in government policy? How do we fund that? How do we support that? Not just in schools, because invariably children will come out of school, vulnerable come out of school, will have no support at home or may come from a home that has no you know, functioning family um, uh, set up at all. So how do we deliver that for the lifetime of that, of that individual? Thank you. Osman, you were nodding your head quite a lot though. You were yeah, no, no, absolutely, totally agree. It is, is an issue that um, we've certainly uh, experienced. So working in a deprived part of London, we, we do see th this issue. So when we're told uh, that, you know, um, there's lots of money going into um, digital innovation and uh, we should all be focusing on online consultations as the digital front door to your, to your GP, um, that has uh, triggered lots of um, confusion and uh, incorrect pathways and if you talk about lessons learned one of the biggest lessons we, we've certainly learned is that uh, you don't just implement a digital front door without looking at can everyone access things digitally and um, we've had cycles where people have phoned up to get access to their 
GP practice and been told, um, sorry, you've got to do it online. We, we won't be able to uh, accept it otherwise. And, and the people go online and it, online they fill it in eventually and, and it comes through to um, you must contact your GP because we can't deliver part of the patient ends up in a circle. So it is very much of um, educating, I think, I think um, uh, the healthcare profession generally as well, who, who probably need to understand things as well and to allow multi-access. So we're not just saying you have to access it online. We are saying to telephone access is there. If you don't even have a telephone, you can walk into the um, practice and say I need to speak or I need to see, see someone so, so that that must be be there and I think we, we've certainly experienced it and it's one of the factors that, that we, we've had with, with online consultations that we need to try and try and improve so I totally agree with uh, what we need to do the how is, is challenging and I think the councils um, certainly have been looking at things and Health Watch have certainly been a great advocate. Thank you Osman. Dan? Yeah I for me, I think just to kind of echo Austin and Mark, like the I think the approach has to be you know, that omni-channel for you know a bit of a horrendous consultancy type phrase, you know one which has you know a preferred channel, what have you, of digital, yes, accepted, but so but having the walk-in, the telephone, you know the other the paper for a wee while, dare I say it, um, the paper-based kind of uh, approach. In the same way that you know banks still have that omni-channel approach you can still do telephone banking and you can still obviously do it through your app and you can still walk into one of the like six high street branch branches that are still left in the country but the fact is you still have a physical presence you still have the ability to use and then the in that way there you know we don't in theory exclude an opportunity what the challenge is is ensuring we get the right folks to avail of that, to be able to make sure that they know that those things are still there. And again, it goes back to that messaging piece. And that's kind of like the short term bit. The medium and long term piece is actually on that digital inequality piece. How do we solve that more on that policy, structural, societal kind of angles? Um, but we have until that is solved, we, ha we have to keep all those other channels open. Otherwise, we just exacerbate health inequalities right thank you dan hugo so uh, one, of, one of the things that we were looking at in um, the isle of Wight, really enough is that um is creating a pod within the hospital for people to go to which enables them to correspond or talk with their clinician uh, partly because you're going to have people that don't want to be able to have these conversations at home you know if you've got a, a, a cancer diagnosis and you don't want the family to know, the last thing you want to do is try and hide in a room to say to someone, actually, I'm just going to pop to the hospital, you know, and then going into a pod and being able to have that frank conversation with that fear of somebody else over overhearing is actually useful. So having those kind of pods and enabling people to to get in is one. I guess the other bit is uh, is people actually bought, call, having some digital savvy. So there are going to still be a lot of people. And do they have the capacity to actually understand some of the, the, the some of the digital things? How are we designing our interfaces? Because realistically, we should be designing them in in the simplest way forward is to actually copy and make it look just like the paper forms gets all the information in and therefore it's familiar to people. You know, when I was designing some of the forms for some of the uh, uh, the clinical services what we're saying is you know the, the current form is this replicate it because then when it comes to training I haven't got to retrain a whole workforce because actually it's exactly the same format as it would have been uh, uh, on paper based and then should the system oh <laughs> what we should be trying to do is you know we, we know that paper works we know that paper collects sorry we, we know the paper collects information so how do we get that working for us you know so we, we i think we always have to be in the back of our mind that there's a separation between the interface and the actual data let the data work for us and, get, and that and enable that to do some amazing things but when it comes to the interface we've got to make that as intuitive as possible thank you hugo has anyone got anything mark yeah <laughs> Well, thank you for all your thoughts and contributions. Again, it's not something this, the, the digital poverty challenges is a, is a multi-year um, challenge, isn't it? It's not something that's popped up in the last 18 months. 
I, I just want to reflect back on on something you just said there, Hugo. I think in that um, it's amazing when you when you when you have these conversations, how much of all of these points we've raised actually for me are quite cyclical. It's about skills, trust, perception, usability. And, and those catchwords, keywords, would capture all of the conversation we've had today. So I'll give you a very, very specific example, though, in terms of digital poverty, that where it does make a massive difference. So we, we so we've run a pilot for the last 12 months. Um, and uh, I actually spoke to this lady firsthand. Um, her, her grandchildren were up in Manchester. She's in North Central London. Grandchildren up in Manchester, hadn't been able to see them. Uh, she unfortunately was uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, couldn't get to see them because of COVID and, and restrictions. Um, and we intervened and we actually managed to get equipment to her and skills, enough skills to get her to video call her son and, and grandchildren. And if ever I need a reminder why I do what I do, that's it for me. For, yeah. It, it, the look on her face and her son's and her grandchildren's face was just, and that for me, if we do that for one person, that's one person more we've helped improve the life of, and, and experience of. And I'm less being sentimental, but a more procurement wise is Hugo's point about if we made a standard, if we made the systems in some way standardized, or at least the outputs standardized, we wouldn't have this disparity of three different video consultation systems in the various patch or, you know, from, from a, from a, a patient's point of view, I could move between boroughs in London and be completely lost. And I, and I would class myself as fairly IT literate, um, you'd hope. But it is that standardisation of, of, of systems and deliverables, isn't it, really? Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Has anyone got anything else that they'd like to add onto that? Yeah, so, so just 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 on that point uh, that Mark made around uh, standardisation, I think it's really really important um, uh, because it, it is very much um, you know, if you're in one area you download this app, if you're in another area you download that app. Uh, we, we need to get away from that, and it needs to be app yeah. naive, um, and it, it just works. And coming back to user experience, it's just like you buy you buy a smartphone, it's just intuitive, and it, it should be for both. Um, a provider and and patient it should be uh, seamless in terms of the way it should work and that's what our aim should be 